Welcome to Historical Jesus. I'm Mark Vinette. Let's examine certain Christian texts written in the name of another person by an anonymous author called pseudographical works, which are pieces of writing that are falsely ascribed to someone other than the actual author, as explained by excerpts from the Pints with Aquinas podcast. Let's talk about the Gospels. I've heard people point to that passage from Christ who says this generation will not pass away before the Son of Man comes again. How does that not disprove? I mean, the generation has passed away and the Son of Man has not come. Right. Yeah. Well, first of all, the word generation can also mean race. So this yeah. race will not pass away and the human race hasn't apparently. That, so the, the Greek the, word yeah, it, is, is synonymous. Yeah. It's polyvalent as more than one sense. So there's that. Furthermore, this is super interesting. I didn't even believe this before I actually worked on this and found this. But if you go back to the Old Testament, the Old Testament prophets frequently talk about the coming of the Lord. And by that expression, they mean the coming of the Lord in judgment. So you find prophecies in the Old Testament where the Babylonian destruction of Jerusalem is predicted as a coming of the Lord. And they don't mean a visible apparition of the God of Israel as if he's going to appear and be seen with the physical eye, but they mean a visitation of his divine judgment. So you can demonstrate that in many passages from the prophets. So I think what we have with Jesus' language, like this generation will not pass away until the coming of the Lord, etc., is this language of a visitation in judgment, which indeed happens within a generation with the judgment that falls upon Jerusalem, which in turn foreshadows the end of the world. Another thing that strikes me is if the Gospels were written by hucksters, salesmen, yeah. Why do we do these things? Why do we lie? And it would seem that for one of three reasons, maybe power and influence, money or something else. Right. But in the Gospels, it seems to me that if you were writing a fake gospel in order to gain prestige, you wouldn't write yourself into the script as a knucklehead who keeps misunderstanding (laughs) Jesus. You wouldn't have people accuse this Christ as being a drunkard. You certainly wouldn't have Christ rebuke the head of this group as Satan. What else? I mean, do you see what I'm yeah, saying? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And if you're writing later, you would not have these predictions of the destruction of Jerusalem, which seem to imply that the world's going to end immediately thereafter. Now, yeah. I think that we have ways of understanding that, but you would want more explanation in there. And furthermore about that, all of the apostles come off looking like nitwits. This is not a hagiography. This is not gaining prestige for Peter, possibly for John, but John never uses his own name in his gospel. He's very indirect about that. I think that's a very strong argument. You have a lot of, as it were, politically incorrect things said about Jesus and the apostles that are very difficult to explain. His family thought he was crazy. But that's so authentic because you can totally imagine that happening in reality. So it rings true with our human experience. I got into a debate about this at a Bible conference some years ago. This Bible scholar got up and he said that in the first century, these Jews were superstitious and they just didn't understand that miracles don't really take place because they didn't have the notions of natural law and modern science. And I got up after his talk and said, no, that's not actually the case. Because when Jesus performs a miracle in the Gospels, the people react just like you and I would react. That's right. You know, they're like, dang, what the heck is going on? (laughs) What's with this guy? He just commands the winds of the waves and they calm down. People are shocked. They're afraid. They're scared. They're frightened, you know. And that's precisely how we would react if somebody did this stuff. So it rings true. The reactions are kind of authentic. 
you can see people struggling with this challenging person that Jesus is, struggling to try to understand him and fit him into their categories and having a difficult time doing so. You mentioned that we have strong evidence in Matthew about the temple that suggests it was written prior to the temple. Yeah. Do we have evidence in other Gospels, because of the destruction of the temple, that they were written after? No, actually, this has been brought up several times, most famously by a Bible scholar by the name of J.A.T. Robinson back in the 1970s, who wrote a book called Redating the New Testament. And Robinson, who was not particularly conservative, in fact, theologically, he was kind of a leftist, but he just points out that there's no smoking gun passage in any of the Gospels that clearly points to the fact that it was written after the destruction of the temple. And so, Robinson said, hey, all of the New Testament documents can have been written prior to the destruction and probably were. That was his position. And just last year, Jonathan Bernier prominent New Testament scholar, updated Robinson's argument with a book called Rethinking the Dates of the New Testament and refreshed all those arguments and showed that, yeah, Robinson's arguments, they need to be adjusted for some discoveries, but it's still a sound argument to this day. You can date all of the New Testament documents prior to the destruction of the temple in the year 70. And in the case of the majority of them, that would be the preferable date. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-218-6010. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in... Anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-218-6010. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-218-6010. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. Now, personally, based on the testimony of the Church Fathers, I regard John as being written later. But there is evidence in the Gospel of John of it being written prior to the destruction of the temple, because at one point John says, for example, there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate such and such and such and such. And it's a statement that implies that at the time of writing, this is still true of the city of Jerusalem. Now, personally, I think of that as John, as an older man, as church tradition tells us, for whom Jerusalem is just so real in his memory. These memories are so vivid that he kind of speaks in that vivid manner. But you can, and many have and do, take this as evidence of really an early date, even for the Gospel of John. Which John wrote John, and does it matter? I think that the simplest explanation is it's just the Apostle John. And Paul N. Anderson, a Methodist Bible scholar, just maybe within the past five years, wrote a tour de force defense of just traditional authorship of the Gospel of John, saying it's the Apostle. And he presented this at an international conference of John experts. It was held in Lima, Peru. 
all these Johannine, we call them experts from all over the world. And Paul Anderson gets up and he gives this resounding defense of John's authorship. I just think it's the explanation that best fits with the data. Because at the end of the Gospel of John, you get the big reveal where you find out that this guy, this disciple whom Jesus loved, is actually the same guy as is writing this book. You find that in John 21. So this is the Mm. one who has written these things down. And then you go back through the Gospel of John and you look at the profile of this disciple whom Jesus loved and you find out that, for example, he always seems to be hanging around Peter. Mm. Well, that's interesting because you go to the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts and you ask yourself, of all the apostles, who is the one that's always hanging around with Peter? And what you find out is, it's John. Peter and John get sent into Jerusalem to prepare the Passover for the Last Supper. Peter and John get sent to Samaria to confirm the converts that Philip had made in Acts chapter 8. So Peter and John this, Peter and John go up to the temple and they heal the handicapped man who's on the steps of the temple. So it's that subtle confirmation where the profile of the disciple whom Jesus loved, who's traditionally always been understood by the church as the Apostle John, His profile fits with the profile of John that we have from Luke-Acts. And then other subtle things. Church tradition identifies John as the youngest of the apostles. That would fit with John outrunning Peter to the tomb. If he's a teenager and Peter's in his 30s or 40s, that would make sense. The teenager gets there first. John being the youngest would fit with John sitting beside Jesus at the Last Supper because the oldest and the youngest male present sat next to each other. The oldest male led the Passover Seder, and then the youngest male had a speaking part where he was supposed to act stupid and ask dumb questions like, why do we eat bitter herbs this night and stuff like that? So those two sat next to each other at a Passover. And that's where we see Jesus and John. And also, John laying his head on Jesus' chest is kind of a social gesture or kind of interaction that would be appropriate between a much older brother figure or even a father figure and a much younger man. But two guys the same age, a little bit weird. So if we imagine John at maybe 15 years old, Jesus in his 30s, Jesus is old enough to be his dad. So that kind of physical affection is appropriate. And then further, that explains why John is able to stand at the foot of the cross. Being maybe 15 years old, he does not look like a threat. So the Roman soldiers allow Uh, the women, and you got a teenager there in a tank top, jams, and flip-flops. He's fine. Let him go with the women. He's no threat. But Peter was a grown man who carried some gravitas. You're not going to let him. If he shows up, you're going to arrest him because he might cause some trouble. He can wield a sword and cut somebody's ear off. So there's all this subtle circumstantial evidence that points to the beloved disciple being young and being a sidekick of Peter, and that's exactly how he's betrayed in Luke-Acts and and early church tradition. The strongest evidence is just the simple, what has been the church's tradition. I'm Mark Vinette. Thank you for sharing your time with me. Doctors endorse it, nutritionists recommend it, and customers love it. Calotrin Healthy Weight Loss. Ron in Texas lost 35 pounds. Marie in Pennsylvania lost 117 pounds with Calotrin. Diane not only lost weight, but she also found relief from arthritis. Lynn lost over 45 pounds. Calotrin contains collagen, the most abundant protein naturally occurring in the human body. 
which decreases as we age. Taking Calatrin promotes better sleep, more energy, less joint pain, and best of all, weight loss. Calatrin has an amazing 86% success rate with their 90-day supply. And this week, take advantage of their President's Day sale. Buy the 90-day supply and get an extra month free plus free shipping. Ordering is so easy. Just text the word HISTORY to the code 30605 and we'll send you a link to this special offer. Again, text HISTORY, that's H-I-S-T-O-R-Y, using the code 30605. 